If you've got your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, we have some Bibles available for you to your right. Um, Feel free to go and grab one, um, and you will need one because as a church, we believe in the um, sufficiency of God's Word, and um, so therefore, the way we preach and talk about God's Word is verse by verse, and we love, and I love um, hearing the pages of Scripture flick, and I also love it when everyone's following along. Um, I don't want you to take my word for it. Um, I want you to see it for yourself. And so um, have your Bibles, whether digital, if you don't want it, um, to your right, you can grab one. And so we're um, in um, Mark chapter 2, and this morning we're going to look at verses 18 um, to 22, verses 18 to 22. Um, And it's on the topic of fasting, weddings, um, wine skins and garments, and so we're gonna have some fun with that. All right, I'll read. <laughs> I'll read and follow along as I read. All right. <clears throat> now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, "Him, that is Jesus. Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast?" And Jesus said to them. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. All right, pray with me. <sighs> Jesus, in you, with you, there is hope. There is hope for today. There is hope for the future. Thank you for coming. Thank you for saving us through your perfect life, through your death and through your victorious resurrection. And so as we reflect on who you are, And what you've provided for us, may we grow to love you more. May we grow to treasure who you are and all that you've done for us. And and in your name we pray, amen. Amen. I was born... In Kumasi, which is the second largest city in Ghana, West Africa. I was born out of wedlock. This made me fatherless for most of my life. My dad never lived with us, so this made him kind of a part-time father. I only got to see him on special occasions 
like my birthday and Christmas, what he'll do is he'll come, he'll take me out and buy me a bottle of Coke. And in Ghana at the time, you know, a bottle of Coke was a treat for a young kid like myself. He would buy me toys and he would occasionally let me sit in the driver's seat of his truck when it was parked. Okay. After the date was over, he would drop me back home and he would be gone. And I knew as he drove off, it would be a long while since I saw him again. The last time I saw my father was just before I migrated to the UK. Um, I was about seven and that's like about, um, what, 30 years ago or something like that. My mother migrated to the UK about a year or two after I was born, and her purpose, of course, was long-distance motherhood. And, um, you know, if you were in Ghana at that time, to get a ticket to the UK was like gold. And what most mothers would do was leave their kids behind um, and make their way to the UK and kind of work hard over there and send money back. And so that was what was going on at that time. Um, and so her leaving me and going was for the best, right? She wanted to support me and provide her son who was in Africa with good education and a better life. I spent the next four years in Ghana under the strict parenting of my grandmother before we finally moved to the UK to re reunite with my mother. Um, and like many children, okay, um, we follow in the footsteps of our parents, whether that is character, behavior, our likes and dislikes, whatever. Um, and I followed my parents, right, my grandma specifically, um, in her religion, in her worship of God, um, and in her religious practices and activities. My grandmother's God commanded us to observe the Sabbath on Friday evening until Saturday evening each week. Um, and we were not allowed to work during those times. We were not allowed to do anything. My grandmother's God was very generous, okay? He provided us with all of our needs. I remember one time when we were super hungry, okay? Didn't have any food, and then we prayed, and not long after that, someone came um, and just brought us some food. That is when I started to know that my grandmother's God was generous and provided all of our needs. My grandmother's God desired all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. My grandmother's God wanted us to give to those in need. My grandmother's God also wanted women to cover their heads while they were praying and while they were at church. My grandmother's God commanded us not to eat pork and to not put anything on top of the Bible. My grandmother's God, every time we prayed, required that we pray on our knees. That was my upbringing and that is how I viewed God growing up. And how I viewed God growing up was that God was this kind of big, um, ogre, kind of this Zeus Greek God um, who had 
high demands for us. Um, and if we went out of line a little bit, he would zap us and punish us. That was my upbringing. But when I got saved and I encountered Jesus for real, I realized that during those times, I had an inaccurate perspective and vision of who God really is. I started to realize that I related to God back then based on works that I had to do rather than the work he's done for me in Jesus Christ. This particular part of Mark is a key point in history. And the reason is, it is at this moment that Jesus ends religion and introduces a new way of relating to God. Verse 18 begins with these words. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And so in the times of Jesus, it was the norm for teachers, scribes, rabbis, philosophers to have disciples or apprentices or students that followed them everywhere they went. And the reason why they followed them was because they wanted to learn from them. So Jesus wasn't the only religious leader with disciples, right? Most of the time when we think of the word disciple, we associate it with just Jesus. But realize that every rabbi, every teacher, every kind of leader also had disciples. Throughout our study of the life of Jesus from this biography written by a first century scribe named Mark, we're going to see repeatedly that the Pharisees were one of the most resistant to Jesus and his mission. All right? The word Pharisee comes from a Greek, Hebrew, not Greek, sorry, Hebrew term meaning separatists. To be a Pharisee was to live a life that was radically different from others. Pharisees were a group of hardcore religious leaders known for their strict approach to keeping God's law. Their life was based on a list of do's and don'ts. They believed that keeping the law should be the primary duty of every individual. Okay, And because of this, they conflicted with Jesus on many occasions. Last week, we saw how Jesus questioned, no, we saw how they, the Pharisees, questioned Jesus' commitment to the law because Jesus spent time eating and drinking and hanging out with the outcasts of society. They were livid. They were angry. They couldn't believe that this rabbi Jesus was hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. They were disturbed by it. And so the Pharisees, all throughout, we're going to see that they leveled accusation upon accusation at Jesus. And eventually, they had a hand in his persecution and death. Despite their constant conflict with Jesus, what's surprising is that out of all the religious subgroups of Jewish society in the first century... And this is interesting. Jesus, okay, aligned most closely with the Pharisees 
when it came to his theological viewpoint. He shared the same ideas when it came about uh, when it came to God. Right? Um, you know, the Pharisees believed that God was the creator of the universe, and not only God created the universe, but God sustains the universe. And the Pharisees believed in life after death and eternal life and angels and all of these things. And guess what? Jesus believed the same things. Although they had these theological convictions in common. There were some areas where they went beyond what Jesus would endorse. Okay? They may have aligned with Jesus on certain theological convictions, but they differed from Jesus when it came to the practical application of those truths. The Pharisees were all about the law. They knew the law better than most people. They read it, studied it, memorized it. They could recite big portions, large portions of God's law, like Jesus, they valued the law and believed with all their heart everything it said and desired to live life in obedience to these laws. As much as they valued the law, they also were all about a book called The Traditions of the Elders. This book was kind of like a commentary on the law. Okay, it was like the notes found in most study Bibles. It did not only provide an interpretation of the law, it also provided practical applications of it. And this set of writings to the Pharisees had become more valuable to them than the scriptures, than the law of Moses itself. An example is their view of fasting. When it came to fasting, they went over the top, right? The law required fasting only during the period leading up to the Day of Atonement. In addition to this, there were times when the Jewish community would fast. This was when they encountered something like a natural, you know, a national tragedy or times of distress or personal grief or trial, struggles and repentance. Um, the Pharisees and the Jewish community, they would fast, but the Pharisees, however, went a step further. They went around teaching that it was necessary to not only fast during those seasons, but to also fast twice a week. And like with many other things, their commitment to this level of piety made them very self-righteous. So, Some of the people had noticed that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees were fasting, abstaining from food. So what they do is they hurry directly to Jesus and ask him the following question. Jesus, hey, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Fair question. Absolutely, we're not certain of the motive of in, or intent of the, of the question. We're not. Um, they could have been very combative, but judging by the history Jesus had with the Pharisees, I think it's safe to say that it was combative and it, had a, it carried a critical tone. It was more like, hey, Jesus, 
why are John's disciples and the Pharisees trying to like act now? Trying, <laughs> it's so bad. And the Pharisees fasting when your disciples are not fasting, kind of thing. How does Jesus respond? Classic Jesus, he answers their question with an analogy that begins with a rhetorical question. Oh, Jesus is brilliant. He's genius, all right? And his answer ultimately reveals a bit more about who he is. That is his identity, okay? And not only that, but also reveals his ultimate destiny. Hey, Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast and your disciples do not fast? Jesus' answers. Jesus' answer begins with a rhetorical question. He says in verse 19, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? And then what Jesus does is he provides the obvious answer. He says, of course not. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. I absolutely love weddings, okay? They're like a joyous time. Just in the, what, last month, I've been to two awesome weddings. One was on the beach in Huntington Beach, of course, and it was awesome. Was it Huntington Beach? Did I get that right? Just making sure. It's awesome. <laughs> um, and one was in Poway, where I had the opportunity to officiate, and that was awesome as well. I absolutely love weddings. And weddings in Jesus' day, this is interesting, was so different to the weddings of our day. Weddings in our tent, contemporary culture just last for a few hours. You know how it goes. The ceremony is about 30 minutes, and after that is the cocktail hour, and after the cocktail hour, everyone's like still hungry, and then there's the reception, and there's food, there's dancing, there's speeches, and there's all sorts of stuff, photos, and all sorts of stuff, and it adds, you know, weddings just kind of go for a few hours, and everybody's done, and everybody goes home way different to the weddings in the first century. A wedding feast back then lasted for an entire week. Every guest, of course, was required to take the week of work, okay? <laughs> and every day of the wedding was filled with lots of eating and drinking and dancing and good vibes and high-spirited behavior. It was quite a party. And I am so glad our weddings are, are like, I'm, I've got two daughters, like, you know, and I'm thinking if weddings were a week where you had to feed and entertain people for a whole week, it would be really, you guys, it would be really expensive. It really would be. The wedding, like all weddings, was a time of rejoicing and celebration, not a time of misery and fasting. Weddings are for feasting not for fasting. In fact, it would have been extremely disrespectful to the bride and groom and their family and friends if you showed up to a first century Jewish wedding and refused to eat or drink. It's like you're at a wedding, there's wine flowing and there's food, I'm not eating. Why? Because I'm fasting. You know, that would be a slap in the face. It would be disrespectful. And this is what Jesus is on about when he says, as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Jesus carries on with this metaphor. But what he says next is unexpected. The wedding feast 
It's a time of celebration, a time to eat, drink, and be merry. But then he shocks every listening ear with this closing statement. Guys, look at verse 20, right? Jesus suddenly says, after talking about you don't need to fast because, you know, it's this wedding and the bridegroom. And, uh, and he says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. The word used here for taken away isn't used much in the New Testament part of the Bible. It carries the idea of taking something away from someone with force. Okay? It's an unexpected and maybe violent taken away. So, imagine you're at a first century Jewish wedding. It's day one and the celebration has got off to a great start. Day two and three have not disappointed at all. There's been delicious food, lots to drink, entertaining music. Everyone is having a blast. Everyone's just vibing. Just the wedding shenanigans are just going so well. But on day five, something shocking happens. Police cars pull up outside of the venue. Armed policemen force their way into the wedding grab the groom, put handcuffs on him, pin him to the ground, drag him away, put him in the police car, and ride away. Shocked. Bride's probably in tears. You and everyone there is in shock. Everyone's traumatized. This celebration has been radically and unexpectedly reversed because the bridegroom suddenly has been violently taken away. What's Jesus trying to communicate to us with this parable and metaphor about the bridegroom? By using the illustration of the bridegroom, Jesus was revealing two things. His identity and his destiny. First, his identity is obvious to us and possibly not so much to um, the, the early or original listeners that Jesus is identifying himself as the bridegroom. And this is kind of a big deal. Why? Because in the Old Testament, the term bridegroom is a name used for God. The bridegroom in the Old Testament is God and the bride is Israel, says R.C. Sproul. He goes on to say, but in the New Testament, the bridegroom is the son of God and the bride is his church. Given the Old Testament context of the metaphor, it is clear Jesus is claiming to be God when he referred to himself as the bridegroom. In other words, by using the bridegroom analogy, Jesus begins to slowly unveil his identity as God. The Bible, which is the earliest and most historically reliable source, makes it clear that Jesus is God. 
everyone who studies the life of Jesus must confront this issue and the single and the single central most important issue of all about Jesus is the question of his deity Muhammad believed he was a prophet Buddha felt he was a seeker of the truth Confucius never claimed to be anything but a wise teacher but Jesus only Jesus has made claim to be the eternal son of God. He is God. And that's kind of a big deal for us living in San Diego or in Southern California in the 21st century. You will meet many people that are cool with Jesus being a great teacher, that are great with Jesus being kind of all about social justice and helping people. But the moment you reveal and communicate that Jesus is actually God, things change. People aren't so okay with that. C.S. Lewis is one in one of his classic works, Mere Christianity, presents this challenge. Okay, it's what C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity, you guys know, was based on um, you know a series of radio talks he did, and they just grabbed the content and put it in a book. All right, if you don't know C.S. Lewis, Narnia. Okay, just to make sure. Okay, <laughs> sorry. Gosh, ah. All right, this is what he said: A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a porched egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice, he goes on to say. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. No, he did not by identifying with the bridegroom in his illustration, Jesus is letting us all know that he is God. Do you believe this truth? That Jesus, your savior, your king, is Lord of all and King of Kings, and God. In your opinion, who is Jesus? Because your answer to this question changes everything. If you believe that Jesus is God, no matter what life throws your way, you will have hope. 
Who is Jesus to you? When Jesus concludes his bridegroom illustration, um, what he, he says this, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. Okay? When he says this, what he's doing is he's giving a glimpse into his future. Jesus has revealed his identity as God. He now reveals his identity as the king who will be crucified. In essence, Jesus is pointing in a veiled way to his own suffering, death, by crucifixion and departure from this planet. There is going to be a day, he's saying, when I will be taken away. And when that day comes, it will be absolutely appropriate for you guys, my disciples, to fast. So much here. So much here. Look at verse 21. It says, so Jesus transitions now. He says, no one sews a piece of enchant cloth on an old garment. If he does, the, part, um, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear is made. Um, and so you guys are familiar with this. Like you wash a garment and wash a garment. It shrinks, it shrinks, it shrinks. And if that garment suddenly, okay, has like a tear in it or a hole in it or something. And you say, oh, I know what, I've got a good idea. I'm just going to get like, you know a piece of new patch of garment or cloth or whatever and just stick it on and just sew it on and in our day and age it will probably work because like all of our material these days are kind of like high tech and like just not meant to shrink and stuff like that but back then if that was to happen and you were to kind of wash the old with the new the new would tear the old and vice versa and so this is what Jesus is doing. He then transitions to make the same point, this time with a new illustration. He says in verse 22, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. In the ancient world, animal skin was sewn together and used to hold wine. When new wine was poured into a new wineskin, the wine would ferment and emit gases that would expand and stretch the wineskin. So, in the ancient world, it was common knowledge not to put new wine into used wineskins. If you did, the old wineskin would expand, right, to the point where it would burst, because they couldn't handle it. It would be a disaster. It's like a balloon with air already in it, and kind of just, you know, untying it and blowing more air into it. What would happen? Right? It would probably burst. And so it's a similar thing. So, with all of this, what is Jesus trying to communicate to his audience about wineskins and garments and all of these things? With these illustrations, Jesus is drawing the line in the sand. He is making it clear that the way of the Pharisees is in conflict with the way of Jesus. The way of the religious leaders with their legalism and man-made traditions and the way of the gospel of grace cannot be harmonized. 
Sinclair Ferguson, who is a Scottish preacher, I absolutely love him. He says this, Jesus is teaching, listen carefully to this, all right? Jesus is teaching on godly grace and forgiveness for sinners destroys the old cloth of the Pharisees. It bursts open the old wineskins of their religion. The way and the religion of the Pharisees thought that acceptance before God was based on a person's ability to uphold man-made laws and traditions. But Jesus' way was different. Jesus preached grace, unmerited favor, and free forgiveness. Listen to this. Jesus' gospel began with God when it came to salvation and it, it depended entirely on God himself. Now, this is what's happening. Jesus arrives on the scene and he is bringing an end to religion. And his confrontation with the Pharisees about fasting is not just, oh, you shouldn't fast. Jesus is not saying you shouldn't fast. Jesus' problem is not with whether they fast or not. Jesus' problem is with the motive of the reasons why they are fasting. They were fasting because they believed that the more they fasted, the closer they got to God. And the less they fasted, the more distant they became. So they had made this fasting thing into um, kind of a, a, a thing that saves you, a, a thing that makes you righteous before God. Jesus comes on the scene and says, hey, look, <laughs> I'm not only God, um, but I'm also going to die. And when I die, what's going to happen is that men and women who believe and trust in me will be able to have a relationship with God. Jesus is saying, hey, don't trust. Don't trust in man-made activities and traditions to gain the approval of God. Jesus is saying, the only way you are approved and accepted and loved by God is because of my upcoming finished work on the cross. To the Pharisees, fasting was viewed as a spiritual discipline to earn God's approval and acceptance. They made every effort to abstain from food and drink with the hopes that they could earn God's love and acceptance. Ultimately, they trusted in their own works to earn God's acceptance. And so, for many of us, it may not be fasting. All right? Fasting's kind of cool now. It's like healthy. Our fast is like healthy. But similar to the Pharisees, we often find ourselves trying to earn God's love through our own efforts. Trying to gain God's love through strict obedience to man-made traditions 
will not work. It will cause you to be fearful. It will cause you to live with a burden of guilt that is crippling. The only way to enjoy Jesus and delight in Jesus is by rooting yourself deeper and deeper in what he's already done for you. You cannot achieve the righteousness of God. You cannot do anything to make God love you and accept you. You, in Jesus Christ, by trusting and accepting in what Jesus Christ has done, is what provides you with approval and acceptance before God. And so the question is, what are you trusting in to gain God's love? It may be trusting in church attendance. Maybe trusting in how often you pray and maybe trusting in, you know, you've got this kind of Bible reading plan going and you've done a good job, right? Done a good job keeping up and the moment you miss a few days or a few weeks, you feel horrible. You don't feel like God loves or accepts you anymore. What is it? All of these things are good. Absolutely, but if we begin to trust in them, if how well we do in them defines how much God loves us, we've got it the wrong way around. Spiritual disciplines are great, but spiritual disciplines are for the purpose of us delighting in God. And the more we delight in God, the more we want to know him and live for him through these spiritual disciplines. Who, what are you trusting in? It is my hope that you would fully and completely trust in Jesus because it is only through Jesus and it is only in Jesus that God perfectly and fully loves you. Pray with me. Father, thank you. Thank you for this reminder. And as we reflect on all of these truths, may you give us more understanding. More understanding, Lord. Apply these truths to all of our hearts beyond what I was able to do this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so we're going to enter into a...